first words, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter, friend, but apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, now we ask that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, one of my favorite movies was uh, Hoosiers. And I, I know that hopefully all of you are familiar with it. If not, I just gave you a movie tip, which maybe that's the only thing you'll take away from this talk. But if that's it, then that, that's, that's fine. Um, but if, if, you're, if you recall the movie Hoosiers, the story of this talented but very troubled basketball coach, Coach Dale, who's really at the end of his rope and in a last-ditch effort because of bad decisions he's made in the past. In an effort to save himself, he takes a high school coaching job in nowhere, Indiana, and, um, and he leads this team to victory. It's this tiny little school, but just through great perseverance and his coaching aptitude, he gets this band of unlikely players to win the Indiana State Basketball Championship, which is remarkable because it's a tiny little school, right? Well, fast forward a number of years uh, to like this year. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm helping coach my, my two boys' middle school basketball team. And, and I have visions of, like, I'm Coach Dale. This is actually the second year that I've coached this team. And, and we're, we're, like, a good candidate for, like, unlikely team to actually win. <laughs> there is no size whatsoever amongst this group of middle schoolers. Frankly, no athleticism. <laughs> no basketball IQ. And really, no basketball skill whatsoever. But, but, what we do have is a group of really fun and enthusiastic middle school boys. And so you might think Todd, being Coach Dale, he's going to lead them to victory because enthusiasm is enough. And I'm here to tell you right now, it is not. Nowhere close. <laughs> we, we get waxed. Every single game, every single game. And, and it's taught me, and I've just come to grips with it, because it's, it's, it's like I, I've got some ego attached to this. And, and I have a perfect coaching record. <laughs> you, you know what that would be. Oh, and something. Oh, and something. A number too high to, to, to count almost. I, I, I know this. You, you cannot put in what God left out. You cannot put in what God left out. And so that's going to kind of be my, the subject of the talk here now. Why is conversion necessary for the church? Now, of course, if we're just thinking definitionally, of course, 
conversion is necessary for the church because you don't have a church if you have unconverted people. You just have a gathering or an, an assembly of, un, of, of unconverted people. But so, so yes, definitionally, conversion is necessary for the church. But, but I want us to think about for the mission of the church, for the mission of the church, why is conversion necessary? Why is it necessary? Because the, the church of Jesus Christ, both in the universal sense, which is every real Christian, sometimes that's called the invisible church. It is a church that is visible only to God because he alone knows who all of the Christians actually are. And, and, and this would include Christians from all time since, I, I, I suppose, at least Pentecost, right? Uh, up until today, versus the, the visible church, or maybe the local church, which would be like you know Henson Baptist Church, where uh, our, our desire is that it be converted, that, that all the people in it be, be genuine Christians, at least all those in membership. Again, we want as many unconverted people as possible to, to show up on Sunday mornings. To, um, but, but, but in terms of our membership, we, we, we really want a converted membership. But we are more than, the church is more than a collection of people who just happen to gather for common cause. That, that is, to, to put it this way, you, you cannot belong before you believe. You have to believe in order to belong. That doesn't mean that you can't come. It doesn't mean that you can't participate if you don't believe. But in, in terms of your essential identity, the thing that makes the church the church, you can't just show up. You actually have to be regenerate. You have to believe. And so I'm going to suggest to you that in order to do the ministry of the church, all the things that Jesus calls the church to do, and, and we'll walk through a few of them here, Jesus has created a people in order to do that work. So let's think about, about this just for a moment. Jesus Christ is the creator and the head of the church. And so he, as Peter said, Jesus has created this a people for his possession. And it's a, it's, it is a people that he makes. Uh, recall in Matthew chapter 16, one of the first times, one of the two times that Jesus actually mentions the church. He says, it, it works this, it goes this way. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And, and of course, that's an easy question to answer. I mean, I, I would have been all over that one because that costs you nothing whatsoever to say, well, other people say this. Because then in order to be faithful, all you have to do is faithfully tell what other people believe. And so they're all over that, right? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Of course, Jesus is not content to end there. He says, well, what about you? What about you? But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And so he points his finger right at them. And now, now it won't do just to kind of stick your finger up in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. You have to commit. And Jesus is asking that. And, and of course, I, I would submit to you, that's like the most important question that confronts any person. Jesus looking at a person in the eye, either literally or spiritually, and saying, who do you say that I am? And, and, and that question just reverberates through the ages, doesn't it? And it, it really confronts every single person. And indeed, in evangelism, we're giving voice to Jesus, basically saying, what about you? Who do you say that I am? So Simon Peter, as we know, he answered correctly. You are 
the Messiah. You're, you're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to this, Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'm going to leave alone just the question of what he meant by you are Peter. I, I, I want to focus on this. Jesus saying, I will build my church. I will build my church. You do not get to be in the Lord's church, of course, by virtue of what other people say. It is your confession. It is your faith. It is your repentance. That's the common theme, here, right? That, that personal affirmation of confessing Jesus to be the son of the living God, that is the Messiah, that is the great one sent from God to save others, that is the king. The king. So it is the Lord's church. It's quite literally Jesus' church. And so Jesus is giving his marching orders for himself, right? He said, I will build my church, but then also for those who follow him. When the church is made up of believers, then I would suggest to you that it is a people comprised of those who are submitted to King Jesus. And Jesus' authority is vast. It's vast. How vast is it? Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 20. He exercised his power in Christ, that is, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him, Jesus, from the dead and seating him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Boy, there's so much that we could say about this passage, but we'll, uh, so I'll just throw out a few things. Every blessing it appears, comes through Jesus. Jesus has been exalted. To what end? To what end? All authority has been given to him. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, exercising all authority, we're told, over everything. The language, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, over every title given not only now, but in the age to come. Why? What's the point of it? So that Jesus could be head of his church. That is a vast authority. His authority over the nations, over the world, his sovereignty is asserted here. And this same control who has, con I'm sorry, this same Christ who has control over everything is exercising that control for the purpose of his number one goal, that is the church. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That, 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 that all, although everything going on in the world is frustrating and disappointing and discouraging and frightening, do you believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus? And Jesus, if you asked him, what's your number one title that you love the most, he would say, head of the church. 
the omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign Christ is exercising his authority over all things, not, not just all things related to religion, but over all things, building his church. Today, the papers and news streams are full of what's going on with Russia invading Ukraine, different places responding differently to COVID and mask mandates, all sorts of mayhem in the last couple of years, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. And it feels like things are spinning out of control. But for the church, which is the assembly of converted people who have submitted to Christ, we ought to know that Jesus has this. Jesus has this. The, the headlines might read, Russia invades Ukraine here on earth, but the heavenly headlines say the same thing they've been saying ever since Pentecost. Jesus is building his church. And he's using everything to that end. He's exercising his sovereign control to that end, whether we have eyes to see it or not. So the, the ultimate authority of the church is, is Jesus. Churches are going to have elders and deacons, or, or whatever we want to call the elders, to lead them. But that authority is delegated by Jesus. The authority of the elders and deacons may be invested by the Scriptures, recognized by the congregation, but materially it comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. And it's much healthier for everyone in the church, but for those in leadership in the church especially. If people recognize where the authority, the local church authority actually rests and where it comes from. A church full of people who do not recognize truly the authority of Jesus or merely give lip service to it is only going to recognize the authority of the human leadership. I'm not denying the humanity of Jesus there, but I'm talking about the elders and deacons that we have, right? They're only going to recognize that authority as long as they happen to agree with the elders or it's convenient for them to do so. A church of converted people will recognize the authority of Jesus because by definition, they have bent the knee to Jesus already. Out of that's going to come a supernatural unity, we were told. We're this chosen race. That, here, uh, John, John 17, this is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll just introduce it by this way. This is the most ridiculous prayer ever uttered. Or it feels that way. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in, the, in me, Jesus prays, through their word. Isn't that interesting? The shadow of the cross looming, Jesus is thinking about us. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, that, that is a huge request. Jesus is praying that Christians be unified, that his church be unified, and the standard of that unity is nothing less than the unity of the, between the Father and the Son, an intertrinitarian unity. Now, I don't know precisely what the relationships or the machinations of the Trinity are like, but I, th I'm, I think I'm a pretty good, I think I'm on pretty firm ground to assert that this is a unity unlike anything we have ever seen. So as, as Christians, 
regenerated, converted, we are indwelt by the very same spirit that interpenetrates the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? So it's not as though we don't have divine resources at our disposal here. And furthermore, Jesus actually asked that we would be unified. And this sounds tongue-in-cheek, but I suspect that Jesus has pull with the Father, right? So, 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 so it's not just a crazy request. It's, it's Jesus asking the Father for this. It's an earnest prayer of Jesus, a request that's grounded in the inter-Trinitarian relationship that he has with the Father. Now, if we as followers of Jesus can be sure that we have what we ask, if we ask according to God's will, then I think God the Son is going to be asking things that are according to the will of God. Jesus' request that we be unified will ultimately be answered in the affirmative perfectly, exhaustively. And, and of course, that's probably the key, ultimately, right? As with all things regarding our salvation, the church, the kingdom, there's a now but not yet that we have to work through. Our our destiny, this is something to to remember for, for us, right? Our destiny, your destiny as Christians, is to dwell together for eternity in perfect unity with one another. There's going to come a day, the day of the return of Christ, when we shall see Christ and we're told we will be like him. And in that day, we will be so transformed that every fiber of our being will seek to honor God. Sin will be unthinkable and the totality of ourselves will be willingly given over to loving obedience to God and loving service to others. Now, that is your destiny. That's your destiny. Of course, that day is not today. In the moment, though, aided by divine power and divine wisdom, we fight for unity. And that fight is fierce. Individuals battle the world, the flesh, the devil. Of course, the devil plays for keeps. I know from speaking to many pastors throughout the Northwest that that unity has been very difficult to achieve and even more difficult to maintain. I'm not even talking about interdenominational, universal church unity. I'm talking about unity within your own local church. This has been a really hard season. Of course, when we think about what Jesus prayed in the garden... May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. According to Jesus' prayer, the world's going to know that Jesus is the one sent from God. He's the Savior, the Messiah, if Christians are unified. So again, we're in this huge challenge right now. There's partisan and divisive issues at the top of everybody's social media feed. And, with, and when that's the case, maintaining unity, it feels impossible at the local church level. Because social media can capture people's attention at any moment, 24 hours a day, seven days per week. And, 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 if, and if you're lucky, well, if you're blessed, <laughs> you got maybe two hours a week to talk with folk. At best. If the member chooses to inconvenience himself or herself to attend a service in a Bible study. And, of course, there's nothing that can be done to change that number differential. You can't require that people listen only to you all the time every time their phone comes on. 
but we can pour into them the truths of who they are in Christ. Again, think of the language of Jesus' prayer. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Christians need to know that we are fundamentally in Christ people. That, that is our primary identity. And there are lots of challenges out there. There are lots of siren calls that would seek to pull people away from who they fundamentally are in Christ, that they would be distracted by other things that are easier to achieve unity at, at a surface level, more instantly gratifying more fun at times, certainly easier. There are easier people to get along with than the variety of folk that sit in these pews every Sunday morning because it is a diverse group. We have to remember that our primary identity, if it's true that you are converted, your primary identity is child of God, member of Christ's church, co-heir with Jesus, brother and sister to all those who are born again. Because it's, it's really easy to find your identity, a, a kind of faux fellowship around things that don't matter at best or are destructive at worst. And it's shameful that some people have found more common cause on social media than they have with their own local churches. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful um, that, that, that our church, I mean, has been easy, but I know things are worse in other places. And I'm not, grace, I'm not grateful it's worse in your church. I'm not grateful for that. Um, but I know that we've striven here to maintain unity, and part of that goes back years of just reminding people all the time our fundamental identity is in Christ. This is who you essentially are. We are going to unite around the gospel. We are not going to divide over fill-in-the-blank issue. And, and, and it's been said exactly like that. Brothers and sisters, we're not going to divide over this. We are not going to. So we have to bear with one another Bear with one another. Teach your people their fundamental identity is that of a chosen race, an in-Christ people, born again of God, to, by, and for the gospel. Think of Jesus' teaching in Mark 3. The crowd was sitting around Jesus and told him, hey, look, your mom, your brothers, your sisters, they're outside asking for you. Jesus replied to them, who, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, mother. The loyalties and the unity of the church transcend that of blood relationship. The church actually transcends the family unit. That, that, that doesn't mean that there's no family authority. That's not what I'm saying here. But Jesus did say, your primary loyalty has to be to me. In Luke same pa a parallel passage, he said, Luke records it this way, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Your fundamental loyalty, your fundamental identity is in Christ. And we have to fight for that. All right, moving on. A holy nation, a holy nation. Why is this important? Why is this important? Well, here, listen to the words of Peter. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. 
as obedient children and not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Uh, one of the fundamental tasks of the church is to, is to be an agent of sanctification in the lives of the people. But, but think on it for just a moment. And, and I'm summarizing quickly here because I'm running out of time. Think on it. If, if you're preaching to a bunch of people, asking them to grow in sanctification, but they are in fact not regenerated, then you're basically asking them to engage in a bunch of behavior modification that doesn't have any power other than is it attractive to them or not. And, and the church isn't always going to ask people to do the most attractive sounding things. We're going to ask you to do things like die to self. We're going to ask you to uh, uh, look to the interests of others before you look to your own interests. We're going to ask you, hey, the standard that you love this, that you love yourself, love the person next to you. And maybe the person next to you is someone that if it were not for Christ, you would never even talk to them, let alone sit in the same pew next to them, right? And, and yet your relationship with that person sitting next to you in the pew is that of co-heir with Jesus, adopted brother or a brother and sister by virtue of adoption. We already talked a little bit about church discipline in the Q&A time, so now I'm going really fast here. But, but again, um, if <laughs> that, that fundamental call to sanctification, and then maybe you, you confront someone who's not living the way that Jesus would have a follower of his live, if that person isn't actually regenerate, then you're just going to bang your head against the pulpit, against whatever is nearby that's hard, so you can relieve yourself of, <laughs> distract yourself, so, so that you, you end up going to that last step over and over and over again. But the, the, in most church discipline cases, and the kind that I talked about before, where just a brother and sister in Christ can, comes and confronts you, there repentance will follow. Why? Because Christians repent. That's just what we do. That's what we do. The unrepentant Christian is an oxymoron. We're an interdependent body, a converted, regenerate body. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. It speaks of all these incredible spiritual gifts that we have. Jesus through the Holy Spirit, gifts his body for the purpose of the edification of the body. Each converted and re regenerated Christian is uniquely gifted to minister to each particular body. I like to say that your, your gift mix is like your fingerprint. There's no one like you. And Jesus has sovereignly placed you in this local church, whatever that local church is, so that you can exercise your gifts for that body. Again, if you're pastoring and you have a church full of people who may not, may, who may not be Christians, or let's put it this way, who are not Christians, then, then you're going to be asking people to serve for, the, for supernatural ends when they have nothing supernatural to bring to the table. And they might be able to get by on charisma and willpower for a while, but eventually it will run out. Jesus may sovereignly use that unbelieving person to work edification in the life of another, but there's no reason for us to think that that's his plan. 
Does that make sense? This is why conversion is so necessary in the church, just to do these basic ministries of the church. Remember, like from my basketball lesson there, you cannot put in what God left out. You cannot equip unequipable people for the work of the ministry, which is the church leadership, one of the church leadership's primary responsibilities. Thomas, in the last talk, spoke of it this way. You cannot bring dead people to life. You can't equip unequipable people to do the work of the ministry. And finally, we are a, to be a worshiping committee, or community, committee, community. <laughs> Couldn't even say that without choking. First Peter 2.9, again, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praise. So that, do you see the purpose statement there? So that. This is why Jesus is doing it. This is why, <laughs> why would Jesus build the church? Why would he do that? Why would he regenerate people? Why would he equip people for the work of the ministry? Why would he do all these things? At least in this passage, the primary reason has very little to do with us and everything to do with Jesus so that we might proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And a converted and regenerated people, we must praise the Lord because that is one of, if not the only, and certainly not the only, but it is a sufficient reason for why God saves anyone at all. Unconverted people can give lip service and they can sing loudly, but they can't worship in the way that God wants them to worship. That's what this first Peter passage teaches us. There are plenty of reasons to praise the Lord, and they would include who God is as creator, who he is as judge. But at least in this passage, it highlights that we have been saved. That is always a sufficient reason for praising the Lord, because Christ in his awesome compassion and glory and power and love poured himself out for us that we might be trophies of his grace, a regenerated people, converted people that are called by Peter a chosen nation. Chosen, a, chosen, a chosen people, a royal nation, a, a priesthood of people who exist for the benefit of others. In worship, we exist corporately for the sake of one and one alone.